This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. And at the top of the agenda, the Prime Minister will unveil his new cabinet tomorrow and there are already rumblings about what we should expect. Promotions for Quebec ministers. Can we call that déjà vu all over again? And Christian Freeland has been reminding people of her Alberta roots. On the provincial front, escalating labor strife between the government and the teachers union, I would also argue déjà vu. We'd like to hear from you. What's your take on all of this? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Now I'd like to welcome John Bianco, Senior Vice President and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and Bob Richardson, senior counsel to National Public Relations. Hi, all. Hi, Libby. Hello. Hi, Libby. Hi. Okay, let's start with John. What are you expecting in the cabinet tomorrow? Well, it, you know, it's always a it's always a mugs game when you try to guess uh, uh, cabinets. But but obviously, I think the prime minister, given the fact that he's in a minority government, has a particularly, um, um, you know, strategic uh, cabinet that he's got to put together. Obviously, given the fact that he's actually lost and doesn't have any members in two uh, western provinces, um, I think the west and how he deals with the western issues uh, on his in his cabinet is going to be obviously key does he bring in somebody from the outside um you know there's always talk about mayor ninchin uh, ninchi being mentioned and of course he turned it down and of course Anne mcclellan who's helping them out there's rumors that she might have been brought in or could be brought in but but all of that i think you know leads to the whole issue of of what he does with the whole western alienation wexit issue and how he puts in the cabinet is going to be very very key uh, and of course quebec is the other one with the with the um, rise of the bloc at quebecois uh and the fact that they've lost some some key ministers there uh or former ministers, I think it's going to be important to see who he puts in, in in Quebec to see who they can somehow combat the the uh, the Bloc Québécois. So he'll have uh, all that to do, and, and apparently he's also talked about gender neutrality uh, or making a gender neutral. Uh, the uh, or gender 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 gender, 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 uh, parity, gender, parity, gender balance, balance. <laughs> gender balance I should say uh, he's talked about doing that as well so there's a lot of lot of you know picking and choosing he's got to do to to make this cabinet uh, tomorrow. Bob Richardson, uh, we hear rumblings that maybe Christian Freeland, who uh, we now know, or we've always known is actually from Alberta, uh, that she might have some role in uh, placating the West, maybe as some kind of intergovernmental affairs minister. I think if she's moving at all, it would be to finance, and it would be a flip between her and Bill uh, Morneau. Uh, I think that was under consideration at some point. Um, but with most cabinet shuffles, things go back and forth. So I don't know if that's, uh, that's still the case. I think the prime minister will be trying to put some people with some Western sensitivities, uh, in, in important portfolios since he will not have rep, uh, West, uh, representation in, uh, in two of the four Western provinces. So 
Um, look for people who are maybe a little bit more pro-business minded in natural resources, transport, Western economic development, and also somebody who maybe is a little less, um, uh, Catherine McKenna has become a little bit polarizing. So I think that it's probably time to do a bit of a reset uh, in environment too as well. So I think those are those are uh, some of the things that we'll see. But um, overall, I think it's not going to be a huge change. Um, most of his cabinet was reelected. Um, he doesn't have a lot of maneuvering in some of the different areas. So I think it'll be a larger cabinet, a uh, few new people, um, a little bit more sensitivity to uh, Western portfolios. Uh, and the big question is, does he do a big move like uh, finance and foreign affairs flip? Karen, uh, is Ontario going to be taken for granted in all of this? I mean, after all, uh, you know, he pretty well swept here. No, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that's why Ontario voted Liberal, because they wanted to have ministers and cabinet. I think that that just spoke to where the province was at. And I don't actually think that Bill Morneau will leave finance. I think he is come into his own in that portfolio. And I think he struggled in the beginning with how to be a politician. I think he was a good finance minister and he knows Bay Street. And I think those were his creds. Um, and I think that he, to move him, I think, would be a mistake at this point. Um, I do think they need to have somebody in the environment portfolio that is seen as high profile, that is going to deliver what Canadians expect in terms of a climate change agenda. And, um, you know, and I, but I do think there is some talent in Ontario, uh, particularly uh, Marco Mendicino. I would, you know, I think he is certainly performed very well. And I think that there would be those who see a place for him in cabinet. There's, I'm, I'm trying to look up the name, but uh, a, a guy uh, from Quebec just elected whose name is being put forward, for whose name that I can't remember yeah. is being put forward for the environment who is considered a star candidate. Yeah. And I think Bob might, might, might know his name. I, I, his name has been mentioned a couple of times. And certainly I know that Elizabeth May has mentioned his name as well to say that, you know, she would be very happy if this, this, this new MP uh, uh, became the environment minister. But I think to Bob's point regarding Catherine McKenna, she she was and she has been, you know, she's done a lot, obviously, for the Liberals the last four years in environment. It took a lot of a lot of slings and a lot of arrows and, and a lot of you know criticisms uh, for the work that she did on on those that didn't believe the work that she was doing. So I think that she does deserve and need probably need to move move moved away. And as this this new person from Quebec comes in, and also I think plays to the issue of making sure that the three votes from the Green Party, uh, you know, stick with the Liberals. <laughs> yeah. Not to say that uh, you know you never know when they might need those three votes, but uh, if you if you make Elizabeth May happy uh, with with this one person who's going to be the environment minister, you're going to at least have that uh, to, to look forward to. Okay, one w- with this person whose name we're looking up, Bob. Do you know his name? Yes, uh, he's the uh, new member for uh, I think it's Laurier Saint Marie at downtown Montreal riding, um, uh, Quebec environmentalist. Uh, I don't think they'll put him in environment. I think that would not go over well in Western Canada. He has been. Um, um, uh, named by uh, TVA, major Quebec outlet, uh, to be the next heritage minister. Uh, that would make some uh, sense. That heritage is a good portfolio in Quebec, and it's also a good place to put somebody uh, put somebody like him. Um, and the uh, and the heritage minister uh, now, Pablo Rodriguez, could be a good government house leader. He's been the whip before. He's fluently bilingual. He's been in both opposition and in uh, in government. Uh, and in minority and majority government, so uh, he, he might be a good guy to be able to put into uh, into the government house leaders post right now too as well.
And the name is Stéphane Guilbeault. <laughs> there you go. Where's the bell? Ring the bell. Ring the bell. Ring the bell. <laughs> um, giving myself the bell. But I would I would say this too, and I and, and it's more of a question for, for Bob as well. But I think given what's happening out west and with Jason Kenny and Scott Mo, uh, you know what they're what they're saying and what they're trying to do and, and stuff. I think that the the you know they're going to be looking to see and, and but to Bob's point about the environment minister too, how, who they put in there is going to be obviously very key as to what they do with the trans with the with the pipeline uh, and how they deal with the pipeline uh, from that perspective. But also, um, you know, there was talk about you know Chrystia Freeland and her Alberta roots and and maybe potentially putting her in a in a position of intergovernmental affairs, uh, in in a position that you know and I don't know if if that would work or not, but certainly I think that she would probably be somebody with the credibility and with the the you know the the heft. Of the success that she's had over the last four years and in foreign affairs in that position and whether or not it'd be a polarizing position or not for her. Well, it's it's interesting because we're talking about on the one hand uh, trying to deal with Quebec and the resurgence of the bloc and then uh, the Western alienation. And it seems to me that that uh, it's like a seesaw. The yin and yang of it is not good. Whatever they're going to do to placate Quebec is going to aggravate the West. Uh, am I right or am I wrong? No, I think you're absolutely right because the, you know, Quebec is, the Bloc Quebecois has been very clear that they're not going to support anything to do with the pipeline construction. And the West has been pretty clear that the pipeline construction has to happen. So it, it will be a very nuanced dance if the prime minister is able to sort this one out. You know, I think that, um, there are ways to do it, of course, but, uh, you know, it's not evident, uh, how that cabinet needs to look in order to do, have that dance succeed. And, uh, Bob, some people are saying that this will put a bigger emphasis on a lot of the jobs that are uh, very unsexy procedural jobs, house leader, whip, all of those things, and, and, and maybe parliamentary secretaries as well. Should we be paying attention to those? Yeah, I think so. And, and actually committee chair jobs, too, as well, because the government won't necessarily uh, control committees. So who's the chair will be important, and you'll want some experienced members. Okay, moving right along, provincial politics and uh, what seems to be this uh, never-ending labor strife, or is it just a little posturing before they all find a deal? John? Oh, well, I hope I hope they find a deal, and quite frankly, uh, parents are hoping for a deal as well. And, and, you know, it's encouraging that the government did sort of strike a deal with QP back, uh, you know, a month or so ago, whenever it was, um, on, on the height of their, uh, you know, sort of last-minute negotiations on the Sunday at midnight almost uh, before the Monday uh, deadline, they, they came up with an agreement. So I think that there might be some um, motivation or at least momentum to get these two uh, or unions or at least the, the, the back, back, to, back to the table. I think the minister who's been handling this issue quite quite amazingly well and quite quite uh, successfully over the last little while even the messaging has been powerful well especially the messaging i mean he's uh, he's uh. pretty masterful at that you know karen do you think he's winning the pr war well, I, I think so and i you know I, and again i don't i don't say this with any authority other than i think that there is a fatigue amongst parents who have children in the public school system that every single every four years it seems every round of negotiation seems to be uh, fraught with issues that really nobody quite understands. I mean, the class size issue, yeah, we understand, but, you know, wages and benefits and sick days and things that, uh, don't nobody really, else has. Nobody else has. And yes, you know, there are trade offs. And yes, it's a difficult job being a teacher. There's no question. But when you, when you get, 
certain things, you give up other things. And that's what a negotiation is. And it's just felt recently like there's just no give and take. It's just take, take, take. And for parents who are struggling to figure out how to make it all work, it's not that the empathy well is dry, but but there's also a sense of, can't you guys figure it out? Like you guys are in charge of teaching our kids. Can't Why can't you just figure out how to have an adult conversation about a fair package that will help our kids succeed in school and you get what you need to do what you need to do in the classroom? Bob, are the teachers losing this well, PR battle? Oh, I think uh, Minister uh, Lecce has done a very sort of masterful job on the government side. Uh, he's out there constantly. You know, he has, you know, the right messages. Um, I think the government's doing less of a good job at the bargaining cha- table from the sounds of things. Um, they, you know, um, on the one hand, have withdrawn certain things, and then they come back with uh, with uh, with other things. Um, so, you know, it's been... Um, They've been less. Uh, they've been less good there, but their but their PR has been quite good. I don't think the the union has been irresponsible to this point. They have collective bargaining uh, rights. Um, they've moved um, under under the law the way that they're they're allowed to um, uh, throughout the process so far. So you know, I'm not too worried. I think there's a good chance that we'll see a deal struck on this. I don't think the two sides are too too far apart. But, you know, there'll be some dancing and some accusations over the next few days. That's usually part of the, the gig here. But uh, I think at the end of the day, we'll see, uh, we'll see, them, uh, we'll see them settle. Uh, you would think so. However, the one thing that I do have to say where they, they do have a point when they say, you know what, passing a law that says only 1% really infringes on our right to bargain. Oh, there's no question about that. Yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, again, there's... Um, there's lots of ways teachers move up the pay grid. Some of it is by just cost of living. Some of it is by um, general inflationary increases. And then there's seniority where you move up the grid and you get a bump. So it, it is, um, you know, I think the question is, does the public believe that teachers are fairly compensated for the work that they do? And I think by and large, the answer is yes. Well, I, is it true that, that teachers here are the best compensated in North America? I've well, seen that said. I, you know, haven't checked everywhere. Yeah, North America, I don't, I don't know about that. I certainly know, you know, certainly within the, within, within Canada for sure. And, and, uh, but, you know, I said, Karen's point, our teachers are amazing and they do a, really, a lot of good work and, and 99.9% of them, uh, work their hearts out and, and, Absolutely. you know, do it for, but, but again, you know, I also think that teachers unions are, um, take it to the next level. And I think that some of them, you know, uh, some of the teachers have to bow to the to the unions, and they have to do what they have to do with, with respect to that. But you know, the, this whole game of this eleventh hour and and mm-hmm. sort of you know the threatening of well, you know, your kids, you know, might be that's where I think they start losing the battle. I don't disagree that at the bargaining table there's going to be some issues back and forth, and and you know, Doug Ford and the premier and, and the government has, has gone back on the classroom sizes and other kind of stuff. That happens, but it's the it's the threat of of this the eleventh hour that really gets parents, and when you get parents are on, on against you then you you start losing the battle well that and the whole idea that uh, teachers aren't going to write report cards now whether your rank and file teacher agrees with that approach or that's something coming out of the union it's <laughs> report cards are just so fundamental to the job of a teacher it's hard parents to accept, look forward to them right Karen? <laughs> right and, like you say to your kids like you need to work hard and, and show your results and achieve higher and you know and then to say well we're just not going to do them I, Do, doesn't everybody get a gold star these oh, yeah days? the participation medal everybody wins you know, everybody wins and so you i know, would have liked that those you know those types of tactics while 
may be effective to negotiate your position, I think leave a distasteful um, with parents is distasteful. Uh, certainly with uh, with one parent that I see here. <laughs> Let's take a call from Diane in Scarborough. Hello, Diane. Diane, are you there? Hello? No? Did no? Diane? No, she's coming. Hello? Oh. Paul, I think I speak for a lot of parents that say we've really had it up to the eyebrows with these teacher strikes. I think anything that's funded with the taxpayer's money should be an essential service and they should not be allowed to strike. Mm. These unions have become too powerful. There was a time in history when they were necessary for the protection of workers. They are no longer so. We have laws in effect for 99% of Canadians that do not belong to a union. We, we abide by the law. We follow the law. That's enough of these unions. We've had it. Okay. Thanks for that, Diane. That's not an unpopular yeah. viewpoint, quite frankly. Yeah. Diane's point is quite poignant in the sense that, you know, no, no one begrudges the fact that unions played a huge, significant yeah. role in, over the course of history and, and to get us where we are, to get the workers' rights to, to where they are and where they should be. Um, but but nowadays, are they are they just, you know, placating to their members and, and to their, you know, to the the, the funds and, and using the power that they have in a way that uh, is goes against the majority of their membership in some ways. But but her point is right. The taxpayers' money, you know, you, you should, there's there's been a lot of things, and Karen could say, could say as as the uh, former councillor, there's a lot of city uh, issues that were uh, that were paid that unions were involved in that people were just not happy with. Yeah. Oh yeah, and and the fact that the unions right now their big presence is in the public sector. There's a, a, an imbalance, and, and the whole relationship between how unions were advocating for workers' rights and workers' advancement. Um, but 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 it's it's not equal across all industry. It's really concentrated in the public sector, which is now creating some tensions between other sectors in terms of how do they advance for workers and how do they make sure that you know, the minimum wage is where it should be and families have a, a working wage. And it's it, it it's just it it's just difficult when the public we we feel held hostage by the public sector unions at a time when we're really actually trying to figure out a much bigger issue. Well, it, it's it's also a matter of uh, you know. Uh, Jealousy or um, resentment. I mean, teachers have uh, some perks that that other people don't. Their pensions, mm-hmm. for one thing, and other people don't have that. And uh, they have, you know, the, I you endlessly hear about the long break. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they get their pay prorated, I guess, but but people resent it because they have a lot tougher circumstance. Uh, Bob, would you agree with that as the explanation for that, or are people just uh, no. being unfair? Actually, I think, uh, I think our, our uh, teachers are treated fairly, and they should be treated fairly. I think their compensation should be negotiated. Uh, I believe in unions. I think that they're important, and I think they're important, frankly, more today than they have been in a long time, uh, particularly with several uh, of the governments that we have across, uh, across the country. Uh, right now. So uh, I'm not, uh, I'm certainly not anti-union and I think they're doing what they're supposed to be doing in a, in a collective bargaining process. You know, there's another side to this, the government, the, the cupboards are always bare for the, for the unions when, when they come in to negotiate, but you know, the government managed to find $30 million to put stickers on gas pumps. You know, they managed to find a, a big increase for deputy ministers at Queens Park. Yeah. Uh, they managed to increase for uh, uh, members of the legislature you know, their housing allowances and a variety of other things. So when it comes to them and their pet projects and what they want to do, 
There seems to be no end of resources available. But when it comes time to negotiate with public sector unions or teachers, all of a sudden, oh, there's the cupboards are bare. So there's a bit of a hypocrisy here on the government side. Oh, you uh, bet. Uh, so I don't take them all too seriously. That's why I say there's probably a good negotiation going on here. But uh, these guys are not the white knights by any uh, any stretch of the imagination. And they're spending, by the way, they're spending $15 million more a day than Kathleen Wynne did. And, and remember when they came in and they said how terrible it was and how awful, uh, awful she was and everything and how they were going to get spending under the control? They're spending more money and we're getting less service. So, you know, I think that's what they ought to be focusing on as opposed to attacking public sector unions. Okay, who's who's going to defend the government? Well, I'll I'll defend the government because, you know, I think you can look to I mean, okay, let's if we can just park the stickers. (laughs) Because I I don't actually want to take on the stickers. But, um, (laughs) but, you know, the other matters are, are really it, 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 it's not that's not actually material into whether the teachers can negotiate a collective bargaining a, a agreement with the government. Um, and, I, and I think fundamentally what would go a long way for the teachers and their argument and the union is that how do we demonstrate that our students are actually doing better? Because by all accounts, they're not succeeding in math. They're not succeeding in uh, key areas where our students need to succeed if we're going to compete in the, in the global economy. And, and that is another thing that is just frustrating for parents. It's like, you know what? We'll pay. We'll invest. We'll make these investments. But th- the money, it, it has to translate into better outcomes or you know, something that you can point to to say that, yeah, this is an investment that we're making in the future of our children, as opposed to in the in the bank accounts of the unions. Measuring the outcomes. Uh, and, and again, you know, we've talked about this before, John, and I don't know if the reset will affect this, but this government has done some things that seem so against the brand, like the big increase for the deputy ministers, which is bureaucracy. I mean, it doesn't, you know, make sense to me. And, and there's, you know, the things that Bob mentioned, I yeah. think he has a point. Well, to a, to a certain extent, but I also believe too, that they did inherit a mess. There's without a doubt, they had an inherited mess. And yes, they are spending money. They're spending money in the areas that they need to spend money in, which is education and healthcare, but they're also trying to find efficiencies everywhere else. And that's where, Kathleen Wynne failed. She just kept spending and spending and spending without even trying to find efficiencies anywhere else, and which is why we're in the mess that we're in. So at least this government is trying to understand and determine that healthcare needs to have funds, and we need to be able to fix healthcare. We have to make sure that we actually do some tinkering, and they're doing some amazing work with healthcare, and we're going to see in the next couple of years how it all evolves. And with education, they're putting more money in, and they're giving some responsibilities to the school boards, and the school boards are coming back saying, well, we're going to cut teachers out. That's their responsibility, not the government's responsibility, but at least they're trying to do things, but they're also at the same time trying to cut red tape for businesses. They're trying to promote more opportunities here for investments, which creates jobs. And I think that's what the government's trying to do. And it's the, and so far, it's been a year and a half, and we're seeing a new reset uh, Premier Ford uh, this time around, and I think it's working. Yeah, you're mentioning healthcare, and they're, they are doing a major reset, but there, there are some things about that that are very concerning to people in the healthcare system. Uh, and I know that I worry about because, say, one of the agencies that we know works well, Cancer Care Ontario, we have great cancer care. They're getting rid of it. Well, they're uh, amalgamating into, a, into, a, into an agency, though, right? Exactly, they're not going to get rid of it. Except who's going to be the person making the decisions? Will it be people who know anything about cancer? Well, I would, I would suspect it would be, Libby. I would, I would say it would be, mm-hmm. I think it'd yeah. be irresponsible if they didn't. Obviously, it's a hugely important uh, organization, always has, and it's done some yeah. amazing work. But, but I think that, like, mm-hmm. but you have to understand, and, and I guess, you know, there's 
been so many years where it's been set and people are just sort of used to the, the, the way it's been done, but you can't have three agencies and three levels of, of bureaucracy tripping over each other in healthcare and the money that's being spent, at least save the money, redirect it within healthcare that goes to more, more towards patients' care. Well, we'll have to see how, how that particular works out. I mean, they got rid of some of the, the, the LINs, the local health right. integration networks. And interesting, if you look at the severance was, was $3 million, uh, shared between, was it nine? Nine right. people. So that's $3 million a year for nine people in an extra layer of bureaucracy that was created by Kathleen Wynne. Right. But let's take a call from John in Toronto. Hi, John. You want to talk about the teachers? Hello? Hello, John? I don't know. We've got gremlins in the phones today. <laughs> John, your last chance. Oh, there he is. Or he was. Or there he was. Okay. <laughs> I think we answered his question, basically. So he, was, he was on the phone. He said, well, the three of them answered the question. So yeah. The three of us answered the question. Uh, I'd like to move to the city. And uh, there was an interesting column by Sue Ann Levy, who was quite radical, and she was talking about the city's poverty reduction strategy and how a lot of money, I mean, they, they had this wacky picture on the front of the sun with the toilet with money being uh, flushed into it and saying that there are no checks and balances, that there are no uh, no ways, again, of measuring the effectiveness of these programs. Would you agree with that? Well, I- I think that um, each agency that gets funding for poverty reduction has their own targets. The issue is that how does it all come together? Because you, if we're going to measure poverty and we're going to measure this investment, we have to find a collective way to measure it and then how each agency contributes to that collective outcome. And and I think we're not there yet, to be candid. I think um, there's so many uh, indicators and so many ways you can, as an agency, that you're addressing poverty. And they're all doing good work. I, I don't want to take anything away from anybody. I, I didn't read Suanne's column, but, um, but I, I do think that if um, the investment probably is not... Um, substantiated sufficiently because the outcome measures aren't in place at the higher level. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and on the other hand, so uh, the issue that really got people's goat last week was this whole issue in Toronto of snow removal on sidewalks, which is a crazy <laughs> patchwork. It's yeah. dangerous. Uh, and if you have one person who doesn't clear their sidewalk in the middle of the street, you know, anybody with a disability mobility issue, yeah. a stroller, a dog walker, a dog walker <laughs> yeah. and, and the uh, post office, <laughs> the post office. I mean, just completely ridiculous. Yeah. And, and we had some counselors saying, okay, come on, let's get this done. And, you know, I talked to Mayor Tory about it yesterday. I really, rarely hear him get upset. Mm-hmm. And he was upset because people are making him out to be the bad guy on this. So, yeah. I mean, my question is, snow removal on sidewalks, like, we can understand this. It's going to be a clear benefit for everybody. And then all this stuff that that's kind of pie in the sky and we don't measure, you know, and, and there's always money for that stuff. Well, and I, but I think the mayor's doing a, a pretty good job in balancing all that. I think I think municipal politicians, and I give credit to Karen, who's a, who's a former councillor, but who, the, the work of municipal politicians is like no, no other level of government <laughs> because they have to deal with all these issues. And the poverty issue, you can never put enough money, like housing. Yeah. You, cannot, you can't put enough mon- money into housing. 
housing or into poverty to fix those issues in any way that makes everybody happy. So you have to do what you can in order to measure it and make sure that you're making some improvements on that. But when it comes to snow removal, um, this is where I think before the city amalgamated, where yeah. you had Etobicoke, you know, had its own private garbage collection, right? And, and other areas didn't. Mm-hmm. So that when they amalgamated, they still had that union contract where the city of Toronto, the downtown core, the city proper was in a strike, whereas Etobicoke had their garbage being picked up on a regular basis. Snow removal is the same way where they had North York and, and of course, former Mayor, uh, Mel Lastman had, you know, had, you know, people were, were, were melting snow and brushing <laughs> snow off people's porches. Um, but that's not the same everywhere else. So I think you have to sort of imagine that once you amalgamate, that you have to level out and balance all of that so that everybody gets some level of treatment. Bob, do you have a view on this? Yeah, I, I, I tend to uh, be sympathetic to the, to the idea of the snow uh, removal downtown on, uh, on sidewalks. I think we probably need to phase it in over time because it could be expensive. But I think, <clears throat> look, we're, we're a nation that is a winter nation. We, you know, we're, we're going to have this stuff three, four, five months of the year. Um, and I think it's, uh, I think it's a safety issue. And I think it's also a fairness issue. If we're doing things in certain parts of the city, we should be doing things in other parts of the city as well. So I think it's something that needs to be phased in in uh, in the downtown part of the city over the next period of time, and and we need to we need to figure out how we're going to pay for it. I, no, <laughs> as a former city councilor from downtown Toronto, <laughs> from downtown Toronto, who clears her own walk, albeit I live in a semi. Uh, so full disclosure, I don't have a lot of walk. So, okay, well, it's well, half a driveway. What 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 happens? You know, when you I mean, you know, what happens? 30 or 40 years from now when it's not that easy for you to clear your Well, the, the city does have a program if you I are... I know, but why, no, but if you why can't, do you have a bureaucracy if you can't, if you can't shovel your, your walk for, for, for whatever reason, then you, the city will come and shovel it for you. Um, but if you can't shovel your walk, the expectation is that you're going to shovel it. And if you're rude about it or not around or for whatever reason you don't, you, you actually do get a bylaw infraction. And I mean, the reality is that the sidewalks in Midtown are not the same as the sidewalks in North York. And to get to get equipment to actually clear those sidewalks is not, it's just not as simple as going to the store. And it, it just, it, it, when you logistically try to get, wrap your head around what that would mean, honestly, the costs do not, out, the costs outweigh the benefits on any kind of scale that you can possibly imagine. And so we can, it comes back to, you know, you can be irritated that North York gets a benefit that you don't get in, in Midtown and, and they do. Um, but you know what? I also, as I say, I live really close to subways and I get that benefit that isn't also available to other parts of the city. So the point when you live in a city, you live in neighborhoods and certain neighborhoods get some things and others get others. And that's, you know, you come together and you feel like as a whole, are we working together to collectively to raise the common good for all? And if the answer to that question is yes, whether or not I get my sidewalk cleared is kind of not relevant. I don't know. There is a pilot project, but, you know, for 150 kilometers of sidewalk, that's not very... Much. Well, once once you've once you've done it, it's hard to take to take it back. Correct. So, in yeah. other words, once you've had that service, and then all of a sudden the city now says, "Oh, we're not going to have that service anymore." Then you're going to get people who are going to complain and yeah. and be an issue. And then and it, but that disparity of areas where you know, well, my my cousin lives in Etobicoke, and you know, she gets her sidewalk yeah. cleared, and I don't. You know, and I'm paying the same taxes. So that whole issue of 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 you know, yeah. commonality amongst the areas is a big one in in some ways. Not only with snow removal, but with garbage collection and everything else. You know, so. 
it's the, the trouble of, of the amalgamation issue. Not the trouble, but it was the challenge of the, the amalgamation because you had five or six or you know, a lot separate of things cities. didn't work out without amalgamation. But I'm happy I it happened. Well. I'm happy it happened. I think it, I think it's working out well. You know, we've got a smaller council <laughs> We're now. Three million dollar city that. Uh, you know, we hold our own. <laughs> okay. Uh, we are uh, starting to run out of time. What would you like to leave us with? Let's start with Bob. Well, I uh, hope it will be an interesting cabinet shuffle tomorrow. I hope it's a uh, moderate cabinet, one that focuses um, um, on issues. We need less virtue signaling and more uh, substantive focus on issues. And uh, I hope it uh, does take into account, even though there'll be a lack of Western representation. By the way, voters decided that. Uh, uh, the Prime Minister didn't decide that. Uh, even though there'll be less uh, representation, I hope there's sensitivity uh, to Western concerns, particularly in key portfolios. Karen? Yeah, I think that when you were talking about the federal cabinet, I think the key posts will be foreign affairs because there's still a lot of work to be done there. The environment, because I think the nation is looking for some leadership in that portfolio and intergovernmental. And I think those, um, everything else will pretty much stay as it is, but I think those three ministries will be under scrutiny. Well, I, I just quickly, I think at the provincial level, I think the premier is doing a great job and his government is certainly from a reset perspective since they've been back in the legislature over the last little while. And I think you're going to see more of that over the next little while. At, at the federal level, I think all eyes are going to be on the cabinet tomorrow for sure. And then when the House comes back on the 5th of December uh, to see what kind of throne speech they're going to have and, and how it's going to work and who's going to be supporting the, uh, the prime minister. And that, all that's going to sort of be interesting for all political watchers. Okay. That is all the time we have for our crack strategy panel. Thank you so much, Bob Richardson, Karen Stintz, and John Capobianco. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.